0: It's great to be here continuing our current series, Here I Am to Worship with you today. This is part six of the series, and I'll be honest, I can only think of maybe one other sermon series that I've been a part of that has gone over six weeks before. Over the past five weeks, we've talked about, you know, what worship means, which is to ascribe worth to something. We've talked about how we participate in, respond to, and deliver sermons, how, how that is all actually an act of worship. We've talked about generosity, not just as an act, but as a position of worship. We've talked about how singing and worship is significant. And we've also talked about how serving is an act of worship as well. Our topic this week, though, is a little bit different. This week, we're talking about an ancient practice of the church. And it's something that hasn't really transferred into our branch of Western evangelical Christianity that much. Now, some of us may do this or aspects of it without really knowing what it is, but many of us probably have some pretty negative connotations associated with the term. What we're going to be talking about this morning is meditation as an act of worship. Something I've often wondered when reading and studying the Bible is, you know, is there a stylistic or literary continuity to it? The Bible is a collection of many books. You know, it's written by many different authors in many different genres. There's law, gospel, wisdom literature, apocalypse, letters, so and, you know, a good number more. But is there a common form between these styles? And the answer to that is actually yes. And looking at that common form and what it means actually helps us to read and learn from Scripture in new and important ways. The way the Hebrew Bible and that's what we call the Old Testament was read and is still read by many Jewish communities today is known as meditation literature. What that means in this context is it means that it's meant to be read to re- be reread and then read again and while it's being read and reread it's being discussed it's being pondered it's being questioned and it's being studied. And this task is one that can never truly be finished. It's more of a way of life than a task again because If you've made it through, you just start back up and do it again. Maybe start from the middle, a different spot, but you're never done doing this. And when I begin to describe the way we worship God through meditation on scripture in this way, I'm sure there is something that we can relate to having done or imagine something that we at least can or should be doing to some extent. Something that doesn't seem, you know, all that foreign and abstract to us. But in Psalm one, we're painted a picture of what the ideal Bible reader looks like. It shows us the benefits of entering into this lifestyle of of meditating on God's word, as well as shows us some of the downfalls of not taking scripture too seriously as well. So here's what Psalm one has to say. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked will perish. But the way of the wicked will perish. This first psalm, obviously, first psalm in the book of Psalms, is a particular psalm. it's, It's classified as a wisdom psalm. Now, all Psalms fall under the category of wisdom literature, but in this subcategory of the book of Psalms, it's also a wisdom Psalm, meaning that this is double wisdom. It specifically means that there are good practical life skills that we can learn from this passage. This Psalm really helps to set the tone for the rest of the book of Psalms and kicks off the, the initial grouping, the Psalm 1 to 8, which focuses on humanity and our relationship with God. In this psalm, we see this contrast between the blessed man and the wicked. And though we are shown the benefits of being godly people, and through it, we are shown the benefits of being godly people in contrast to being wicked. And in addition, we're actually given examples of being righteous, shown ways to do that. I think that's great because no one likes a person who only points out what is wrong with a person or situation and offers no solution. So not only does the Psalm show us the ideal, it shows us the not ideal, but then also gives us practical steps to walk in the ideal. In this, we see that the person is blessed, which means made content, it's better off, given happiness. When they do not take advice from wicked people, when they do not stand in the way of sinners, but when they delight in the way of the Lord. After that, we're then given a picture or a scene of what this blessing looks like. This blessing looks like a tree that is planted by streams of water. And this is important. You know, the tree is not placed in the desert to struggle, nor is it placed in a rushing current to be swept away. It's not put in the river, but it's pl- the tree is described to be placed by streams of water. This tree that is described is is blessed and is fruitful when it is supposed to be. And it's successful in everything that it does. We are also given the contrast in this psalm of what one who does not follow the ways of the godly is like. The wicked, as it says, are not like the tree previously described, but the wicked are not planted by streams. In fact, they're not planted at all. It just says they're like chaff that the wind blows away not rooted in anything. Not only are the wicked not rooted, but that they're not, they will not be fruitful. You know, they will not be able to stand through judgment, which makes sense because they're not planted. There's nothing holding them there. And they won't be counted among the righteous. In the summary at the end, it tells us how God knows the way of the righteous, which has the implication that, you know, God has his care and watch on the righteous. But it says that the wicked. perish or the way of the wicked will perish. In just six short verses here, Psalm one gives us this incredible and practical image, the scene of living a godly life. And in this image of the tree, we see three main things. We see one, the location of the tree, which is in the ideal environment. Two, we see the intake of the tree, which is how it is fed. And third, we see the produce of the tree, that it is fruitful. Now, in the same way, there are three coinciding things present in the life of a godly person that I think can be compared to that of this fruitful tree. But in, these, the, in the things in the life of a godly person, we're actually given them in reverse. And I think that's great because Don't we as people like to know the outcome before we bother ourselves with the steps to get there? So in the description of the godly person, it begins with the fruit, the blessing, that that is being content, being looked after, being taken care of by God. And that's something that we all want. That's something we're all looking forward to. It's something we we need to, to feel content, to feel some amount of happiness in our lives. The second is our intake. Our intake is our relationships with those around us. You know, are we receiving input from those who aren't following the way of God around us, or are we fo- uh, receiving our input from those who are following the way of God? And the third is our location. Where are we rooted? This third point is where we're going to be spending most of our time in this talk. This location. It's it's not explicitly stated in relation to the person, but in the tree, it's very clear that it's by streams of water, by the source of life. So that for us is near to God. But it's in how we root ourselves near to God that is the focus of this talk this morning. It says in verse two that the blessed person delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, at the time of this text being written, the scriptures that they had available to them were the Torah or the the book of the law, the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But this designation of the law made here in the Psalm can be extended through the rest of what we have available to us as scripture today as well. And that's what we obviously call the Bible. The Bible is God's word to us. It's the primary way that he speaks to us today. And I know for myself, as someone who's grown up in a charismatic tradition, as this church, Arthur Pentecostal Assembly is in, I've often found myself in what I perceived as dry spells of God speaking to me. Now, what I mean by a dry spell is, a time in my life where I didn't feel God speaking to me, or I didn't feel his presence as much as I may have a previous time. Like, you know, when I was at a conference a few months ago or at a retreat that other time, or when I was on a missions trip, a previous summer and in these, you know, dry spells, I would get really down and spiritually depressed kind of. But you know what I also wasn't doing during these dry spells I also wasn't reading God's word. I feel like that's a common thing for those of us who have felt the presence of God in strong ways. Maybe this isn't the case for you, but feeling God's presence feels good. It makes life feel easy. You know, it's an amazing feeling and it's definitely a good thing. But as Christians in our society, sometimes we feel disconnected from God because we're not feeling him through, you know, like, the spiritual goosebumps or something. And I think that is kind of ridiculous. Now, it's not ridiculous that, you know, we're not feeling him through spiritual goosebumps all the time. But I think what's ridiculous is when we associate the lack of that with feeling disconnected. See, we are the people with the least excuse for this in the history of mankind, except for maybe Adam and Eve when they were walking in the garden before the fall. Many of us are constantly wanting to hear a word from God. That's great. But like the thing is, it's literally so easy. It's right here. Like I have the Bible app on my phone, it's there. I have the Bible on my iPad, it's here. I have like 10 Bibles on my bookshelf, it's there. We have the most access to the Bible out of any human being that has ever lived. And the Bible is the primary way that God has chosen to speak to us as his people. It's the primary way that he reveals his nature to us. It's the primary way that he reveals who we are to us. It's the primary way that he reveals his will for our lives. And if you want to have an experience with God, that's where you should go first. The Bible is literally everywhere, but I think this has kind of become the case with this ease of access is the Bible is pretty much everywhere around us, except for here in our hearts. And that's what this message is really getting at. See the godly person delights in the word of God. Delight means to please someone greatly. Now, how often, if we're being honest, can we say that we have delighted ourselves in the word of God? It says the godly person meditates on the word of God day and night. That means that in all circumstances and areas of life, you're meditating on the word of God. And since we know it would literally be reckless to be you know, reading the Bible while driving, or we'd probably get in some trouble if we were listening to an audiobook of the Bible while in a meeting at work, there has to be another way to go about doing this. This idea of meditating on God's word often can seem strange to us, you know, especially as Western Christians, because we think about meditation in relation to Eastern religions. And sometimes we get spooked into thinking that's something that we shouldn't do because of that. But fun fact, Christianity actually is an Eastern religion. It originated in Israel-Palestine, which is in the Eastern part of the world. But even though that is the case, there are still some pretty significant differences between the Judeo-Christian practice of meditation and other Eastern religious practices of meditation. Now, I'm no expert on Eastern religions by any means, but from what I understand of some of them is that oftentimes the goal of meditation can be to empty one's mind, you know, to kind of defocus, to to disassociate and, and to just open oneself up. But that is not what the meditation we're talking about is about. See, this kind of meditation seeks to fill one's mind and to focus one on God and his word. The idea is to fill yourself up with Jesus and who he is and to focus yourself on God and his word. And that's actually how the Bible was intended to be read. We like to compare the Bible oftentimes to our modern genres of literature, which in reality, it's something very different and unique. The Bible is what is called Jewish meditation literature. It was actually written with the intention of being read meditatively. Now, has anybody ever been confused while reading the Bible? I know I have. You know, sometimes it's such a whirlwind of thoughts going on when you're reading. You know, in one moment, you can be reading a story and wondering, you know, where are the most basic details of this that I want to know? Like in Genesis, when you're reading the creation narrative, you're like, where did this formless void of the earth come from? How long was it there? Where did God come from? What are these angels? Why can the snake talk? Things we want to know, right? But, you know, in in another situation, there are spots where it's so dense With details. Like in Job, there's 33 chapters of straight dialogue between Job and his friends about talking about, you know, is his suffering because he's unrighteous. You know, sometimes I like to think, you know, wouldn't it have been nicer, I would get the information I wanted to know, if we had allocated, you know, 30 out of those 33 chapters instead of to the dialogue in Job to the creation narrative, so we could get a little bit more details and have a little less arguments later on. But, That's kind of the point because the Bible was actually intentionally written the way it was written. It intentionally leaves out details that aren't related to the point that it's trying to make. In creation, the point is that God did it and that we as humanity fell. But at the same time, every detail that is given in these stories is incredibly important. While the Bible was actually compiled out of many different books by different authors and, and styles, everything from Genesis to Revelation actually works together to point towards the same story of the reconciliation of humanity before God. When we look at some of the stranger details and, you know, the book of Genesis per se, there's, you know, a spot where the, the serpent is stepped on by somebody's heel and you're know, like, What is that? But that actually comes to fruition later on in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, when Jesus fights the beast or the dragon. In other situations, you know, there's there's these dense parts that we like to skim over and, and we don't find that interesting, like the genealogies in the Old Testament, but there's also genealogies in the New Testament. And these genealogies actually help draw us towards the point that Jesus is the legitimate Messiah. It shows us the legitimacy of his claim as Messiah. So these clunky parts that we don't necessarily like to read actually do hold a lot of weight. The other thing about the style of writing is that it actually forces us to slow down as we read. It uh, asks us to focus on the details, to read and reread and discuss and think about it and connect the dots, as well as leaves a lot of room for God's spirit to speak to us through it. Because as we read and interpret scripture, something amazing happens. Scripture actually begins to interpret us and transform everything about us. The word meditate in Psalm 1 verse 2 also means to mutter or to speak under one's breath. So what we are meant to do here when it says to meditate on God's word day and night, is to read under our breath the Word of God again and again and again and again from when we are young until the day we are until the day we die and let it permeate and transform our lives from the inside out on a daily basis but aside from reading under our breath, how can we meditate on on scripture you know it says that we're supposed to meditate it on all, all times in all times of our life so I'm going to show five different ways that we can meditate on God's word in our lives. The first way is we can meditate to focus. We can begin by meditating to focus. You know, in Psalm 119 verse 15, it says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. In this way, we can use a meditative reading of scripture to focus our days on God. But we can also begin our times of reading and prayer with meditating on God to help focus as we begin. It could just be as simple as just sitting down, focusing, you know, slowing down our breathing so we don't have so many things running through our heads and just focusing on Jesus and who he is for us before we dive into scripture to really, to really help us center in, in that moment and make the best use of our time, especially if we're stressed and busy. Second thing is we can meditate to understand. And when we open our time of reading with meditation, we can meditate on what the psalmist says with priming our minds to be able to understand how God speaks to us. It says in Psalm 119 verse 27, make me understand the ways of your precepts. Make me um, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. When we meditate on God's word and let it penetrate into our hearts and beings, we also see and understand the world in a different way. Number three, we can meditate to remember. When we meditate on God's word, reading and rereading, it gets embedded into our hearts. And that's why people in the past have done this so much. They did not have access to the Bible with them as much as we do today. And I think that's part of why we lose sight of the importance of memorizing scripture today. But I'm sure many of us who who have read the Bible and, and have that as an important part of our lives can think of specific times in our lives where, you know, just having a Bible with you wasn't enough for the situation. You know, maybe you were talking to a friend or family member and they were having a really hard time and they're just pouring out their heart to you. And, you know, you needed scripture to to help you, you know, give you wisdom to how to, how to respond in that situation, to help them through that, and maybe give some encouragement. And, you know, maybe the time to pull out your Bible and start searching for for verses or to learn what to do isn't exactly when somebody is pouring out their heart before you or maybe some or maybe you were dealing with a temptation or a difficult situation and it was the truth of scripture stored up in your heart that was able to keep you from falling to that temptation because you know when you're being tempted probably isn't the best time to start searching through the bible and look for something to get you through that because that's not going to happen that in that moment you're probably just going to fall to temptation number 4 we meditate to apply Sometimes we need to read slower and to reread, to to gather what we need for life application in a passage. Some of my best times of scripture reading have been where I have sat down with a passage and just told myself, I'm I'm just going to keep reading this over and over again until I have gathered a practical application from it. And the fifth thing, we meditate by the Spirit. I think one of the coolest parts about scripture is that while the Holy Spirit was in ter- inspiring the writers of the text as they wrote it, he also inspires us as we read it as well, making him both the author and interpreter at the same time in the same moment. And it's an amazing experience to be a part of that as we're guided by the spirit as we read. Now, I've had so many times where I've read a passage that I, I've read a time and time again, You know, maybe you've read it like five, 10, 30 different times, and, you know, one day you just come across this passage and you read it and it's like you're reading it for the first time. You know, there's just a line that just speaks so clearly to your, to your situation. You have no memory of that. There's a word that just pops out and you don't remember it being there, but it was there the whole time. And that is the Holy Spirit inspiring us through scripture. And it happens all the time. If you read the Bible enough, you will experience that moment. I have a friend who once said to me that he thinks it's just absolutely crazy and unrealistic to expect a pastor to be able to deliver a life-changing sermon every single week. And I myself used to wonder how a pastor could even preach a new sermon every single week. But then I started actually reading my Bible more seriously. And the more I read, the more I could see the amount of amazing stories there are in there and the amount of amazing life lessons there are to be learned and I could see how somebody could, in fact, manage to preach something new every single week. And while it is obviously extremely important for a pastor and the preacher to be in the Word regularly, if those of us who are also receiving the Word are in the Word, it's almost impossible to not get something out of even a bad message. And the reason for that is because the Word of God is transformative. You know, it's alive and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And we should absolutely adore reading it. It should be the highlight of our day. Now, I am human too. I know that it won't always. <laughs> I totally get that. But we should find joy in reading it. We should delight in reading the word of God. You know, so many of us want a roadmap to life. It's in there. So many of us want acceptance. It's in there. We all want love. It's in there. We want joy. It's in there. We want hope. It's in there. We want life eternal. It's in there. We want relationship. It's in there. We want friendship. It's in there. And some of us even crave discipline and correction, and that is in there too. Nothing can ever be more fulfilling in our lives than planting ourselves close to God, close to our life source. And when we do that, we receive the fruit of blessing and we are able to pour that out onto the rest of the world. And this all starts from drawing from the spring of life that is scripture, that we have in our hands, our backpacks, our desks, our pockets with our phones, and ideally also our hearts. So as I close off this message, I wanna challenge you to reconsider the role that scripture plays in your life to rethink your strategy on how you receive from it, and to take a step back and consider how you might be able to actually meditate on God's word day and night in your life. So I'm gonna close in prayer. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it available to us. Thank you that we have it so accessible that we can literally read it whenever we want. But God, we also pray that you you would show us the importance of having it imprinted on our hearts, God. That you'd show us the importance of knowing it, of having it applied in our lives, of not just reading it and saying, "Yep, yeah, that's okay," but to actually apply that and use it and memorize it, and and to share it with those around us, God. And pray that that recognizing this as as you know a lifelong task is something we do over and over and over again. Something that, that is forever on our minds. God, that, that you would transform our hearts through that and change our practice so that we can grow closer to you than never before before. That we thank you for who you are. We ask us all in Jesus' name. Amen.